0: Hi there, I'm Anna Charles and I'm a Senior Policy Advisor here at the King's Fund. The episode you are about to hear was recorded on the 21st of July and focuses on Public Health England's recent review of the disparities in risks and outcomes of COVID-19 in conversation with Professor Kevin Fenton. Since we recorded this episode, it was announced by the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care that Public Health England will be replaced by a new body, the National Institute for Health Protection. You can find a link to our statement on this in the show notes. In the meantime, we hope you find this episode interesting, and thanks as always for listening. Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Anna Charles, Senior Policy Advisor here at the King's Fund, and your host for this episode. Now, like many people at the moment, we at the King's Fund are working from home. Which means we're recording this episode remotely, so please do excuse any unexpected background noises. Now, over the past few months, the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the stark inequalities that exist in our society and the impact of those on people's health and well-being. So in this episode, we'll be focusing on health inequalities. We'll explore Public Health England's recent review into disparities in the risks and outcomes of COVID-19 and consider what can be done in response and also take a closer look at health and well-being in London. And I am honoured to be joined for our discussion today by Professor Kevin Fenton, Regional Director for Public Health England in London and Regional Director of Public Health for NHS London. So Kevin, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So to get us started, your current role is all about improving health and wellbeing across the city of London. But I've been informed that you've previously lived and worked in a number of different cities in the US, in Jamaica and here in the UK. So can you tell us which has been your favourite city to live in and why?
1: Well, I have to say London is home. And after spending nearly 10 years in the US, I really wanted to come back to London to live and to work so london will always have that soft spot for me it was the place that i did my postgraduate work did my specialization did all my early research and now i have the privilege of being london's director of public health which at a time of a global pandemic at a time when we're faced with so many challenges this is truly a privilege to be holding this role and a privilege to be working with so many fantastic leaders across city. But before I give all the kudos to London, I have to um, also give kudos to my hometown, which is Kingston, Jamaica, where I grew up and where I have uh, so many family members and dear friends. And I think a lot of the values, the passion that I have for public health, the commitment to public service and the commitment to social justice were certainly formed in those early days growing up and studying in Jamaica and specifically in Kingston as well.
0: So two cities. Indeed. And we're going to talk a lot more about your current role in London later. But first, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your career journey so far. So how is it that you've come to be where you are today?
1: Well, you know, I've been really blessed in having had and developed a passion for public health very early in my career. And in a sense, it's a testament to the role of and the importance of role models in helping to shape the minds of young people. I so remember the first time that I was exposed to public health doctors when I was a medical student back at the University of the West Indies in Kingston. And my enduring memory was seeing these young, dynamic leaders who were passionate about addressing inequalities, passionate about making a difference in in the lives of people, but also using evidence to inform their actions and having a very clear sense about the role of science and evidence in informing policy. And I remember thinking, even you know, in my first year in medical school, gosh, I, I think I'd like to do that. That's so inspiring to not only think of the individual in front of you, but to begin thinking about the health and well-being of populations. So throughout my career, I've had that focus on public health and population health. I began as an HIV epidemiologist working on HIV prevention. Very soon that took me into covering the both, the cluster of infectious diseases, which includes HIV, sexually transmitted infections, hepatitis, and tuberculosis. And I had the privilege of both leading the national HIV and STI program here in England and Wales, but then working for nearly a decade with first President Bush and then President Obama as the director of the US National Center for HIV, viral hepatitis, STD, and TB prevention. And then I returned to the UK in 2012 to take up my role as the director of health and well-being For Public Health England. And in that national director role, I made a deliberate choice to move from a focus on infectious disease epidemiology, prevention and control back to my first love of population health and addressing inequalities.
0: And most recently, you were involved in Public Health England's review into disparities in risks and outcomes of COVID 19, the first part of which looked at the data about those disparities. And then the second part drew on insights from stakeholder and community engagement. So can you tell us a bit about that review?
1: Absolutely. So first of all, it was a privilege to be asked initially by the Chief Medical Officer and then to be commissioned by the Secretary of State for Health to look at the impact of COVID on disparities in risks and outcomes, and more specifically, to understand some of the contexts, drivers, realities of the impact of COVID on black Asian and minority ethnic communities. And at the time, this was incredibly important for us to look at. When we were commissioned, it was in April. We were still approaching the peak of the epidemic in many parts of the country. And there was a true sense that somehow this epidemic was having a disproportionate impact on people of color. And there was a real need to understand why this was happening, to confirm the impact, but most importantly, to understand what more could be done. Over a six-week period, we worked intensively, looking both at the epidemiological review, looking at data which were held by PHE, to understand the disparities in diagnosis, in severity of disease and mortality, and to be able to combine that with an extensive stakeholder engagement exercise in which we were able to involve more than 4,000 individuals over the six-week period to get their input into the drivers, the contexts, the realities and the difficulties and the challenges faced by BME communities in the wake of the pandemic.
0: And obviously, in both of those parts of that review, there's a huge amount of information and more that you more than you could say in the context of this conversation here. But for listeners to the podcast that haven't had a chance yet to read those reports, could you say a little bit about what the review found about those inequalities and, and also what we can say so far about the reasons behind them?
1: So I think it's really important to recognize that COVID, similar to other infectious diseases, was not randomly distributed in the population. But it had a severe and enduring impact on different sectors of the population, of which its impact on racial and ethnic minorities was only one of the domains of inequalities that we were able to observe. So The epidemiological review, for example, demonstrated the severe impact of the epidemic on older individuals, both with diagnosis and mortality. We were able to identify differences by sex, with men being more likely to be diagnosed with COVID than women, and certainly men bearing the brunt of mortality from the disease. We saw significant differences by levels of deprivation within society, with those living in more deprived parts of the country nearly twice as likely to both be diagnosed and to die from the infectious disease. And of course, we saw significant differences across racial and ethnic groups. And at the time at which the study was taken, we saw the disproportionate impact on British Bangladeshis or those of Bangladeshi origin, but for nearly all other ethnic groups, there was an increased risk of mortality from COVID experienced during that phase of the epidemic. Now, these findings were robust even when adjusting for factors such as age, sex, deprivation and region of residence. And although adjustment for these factors helped to lessen the magnitude of impact among Black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities, controlling for these factors did not remove the association of uh, mortality and its disproportionate impact on BME communities. Now, clearly in an epidemiological review, we weren't able to adjust for multiple non-communicable or chronic diseases. And we know from the data that conditions such as diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, respiratory diseases, et cetera, can have an impact on disease severity and mortality. But other studies which have been able to control for those factors still found that there were disproportionate impacts on BME communities. And that suggests that there may be a range of other factors which could explain these differences, including some of the social, cultural, behavioral factors, which we weren't able to pick up in the epidemiological review. So this is precisely why combining the epi-review with the more qualitative work which was done, which included a review of the existing literature, it included the stakeholder engagement exercise, and it included the preparation of recommendations were so important because the EPI review enabled us to understand what was happening, but the second report on the literature review and the stakeholder engagement helped us to understand why we were seeing some of those factors we were able to explore with our stakeholders factors which placed communities at high risk of acquiring COVID, whether by virtue of their living conditions or working conditions, factors which increased the severity of disease, for example, living with uncontrolled multiple long-term conditions or late presentation to treatment services, factors which resulted in the increased risk of mortality from the disease, as well as some of the structural issues which were long-standing and which would have influenced how communities both engaged with healthcare services and how individuals, once engaged with the healthcare services, may not have been able to benefit equally compared to their white counterparts. And for so many of the people who participated in our engagement sessions, we had participants who had lost family members, who had lost colleagues, who knew someone in their own community who had died from COVID. So we were doing this review at a time which was not only of import in understanding how to address the epidemic, but also a time of grieving and trauma and loss for a number of stakeholders who were involved. And in the report, I was sure to capture that sense of loss because, in a sense, we needed to honour and recognise that because so many people were involved in this and so many people wanted their voices to be heard in order for us to avoid this happening again and i think if i've learned anything through this process which i didn't learn before is that the power and primacy of the community's voice in what we're doing has to be a key part of this solution and top-down solutions which are just implemented to communities and asked to deliver will not work. Because in so many of those communities, that failure to engage either the pillars of those communities, faith leaders within those communities, or natural networks which are occurring, will mean that we won't get the penetration we need to enable people to adopt the behaviours that we need as well.
0: And so what are the next steps from your point of view in terms of acting on those really important findings from the review?
1: You know, one of the things working in HIV for so many years has taught me is that when we know better, we must do better. When we know better, we must do better. And I think the PHE report, in concert with other emerging literature, really are now pointing to the fact that COVID will continue to have a disproportionate impact on communities if deliberate attempts are not made to both mitigate them as well as to prevent them. So I think the key sense arising from these reports, not only the PhD reports, because there have now been other publications which have confirmed the findings in the PHE reports, and we now have the real-world experiences of areas which have hyper-endemic levels of COVID, which point to many of the issues which we raised. So what does knowing better and doing better mean? It means looking at the recommendations coming from and arising from the work, which call for both better data collection, better reporting on ethnicity for a range of uh, preventive interventions, including what we're doing for COVID. So understanding, for example, how testing for COVID varies across ethnic groups and how contact tracing performance and outcomes varies across ethnic groups so we know how to target and improve our activities. The report calls for more culturally competent approaches to health promotion for COVID, health promotion for multiple long-term conditions, and as we are gearing up to promote the use of risk assessments to help to manage risk, both clinical and in in the workplace, to bear in mind that those risk assessments will need to be applied in culturally appropriate and culturally uh, sensitive ways, in part because it's important that those who are being risk assessed understand the implications of the risk assessment, but also that risk assessments do not inadvertently drive any stigma and discrimination to those who may be vulnerable, not just because of their race or ethnicity, but because of their age, their gender, they may have other long-term conditions that they may need to have dealt with. And it provides a framework for us to hold ourselves to account so that in the autumn, in the winter, by the end of the financial year, we can all hand on heart say to what extent have we been able to implement these recommendations and to what extent they've helped us to both build relationships with our local communities, hold ourselves to account for making that difference, and ensure we have the data to improve our performance and the delivery of our services. So I think in summary that is a key part of knowing better and doing better.
0: And the other thing that that you've really clearly articulated that the pandemic has shone a light on is on the deeply entrenched health inequalities, particularly experienced by people from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, which, as you say, is something that has been known for some time. But this is a case of we now know better and and must do better. Now, that's all come to light at the same time as the recent protests in response to the death of George Floyd in the US and the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement, which is raising all our understanding, I think, of the impact of structural racism globally. So in your view, could this be the start of real change?
1: Well, I hope so. And we have to be clear about what does that real change look like and what does it feel like and how and where do we prioritise change? recognizing that change is never ever going to occur overnight but it will be incremental there will be times when we'll take a few steps forward and then a few steps backward but the arc should be towards justice and the arc should be towards greater equality greater empowerment greater listening and greater empathy for all of us you know when we think of racism we often go to the individual actions that for many people of color they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, whether it is the overt discrimination that people may feel or the microaggressions that people will describe going forward throughout the course of the day. But we must remember that racism in itself creates an infrastructure that informs decisions, policies, opportunities, economic advantage within our society. And it's about how we have that conversation honestly. The challenge of course with racism is that it locates it within the domain of race and skin color, but we could equally argue that for issues related to social class, for issues related to gender, For issues related to other domains, we need to have those conversations about how do we create a more equitable society where we deliberately include the voices of a range of others around the table, because it is through that diversity and through that inclusivity that we end up, I believe, with both better programs more effective programs, and more sustainable programs, which are owned not only by the providers, but by the communities we're intending to serve. And as a public health specialist, to me, that is exactly where you want to get to. True public health comes from that amazing partnership that occurs between the public, policymakers, or programs working together for success. And I think whether it is within the context of increased interest on uh, social justice, or whether it's within the context of restarting in a post-COVID world, these are some of the issues now that I think we need to ensure that we're focused on to do better moving forward.
0: I'd like to ask you some questions now about health and well-being in London specifically. So you're currently the Public Health Regional Director for London, and could you tell us a bit more about that role and what it involves?
1: So. I started in this job at the peak of the epidemic. So in that first week of April when I began, London was seeing the highest numbers of daily cases of COVID occurring. So it was really not necessarily a baptism by fire, but really jumping in and moving really quickly to support the system. And I have to, at this point, acknowledge the work and leadership of all of my partners in London who have been working tirelessly to support the COVID response. But COVID, as we emerge from this first phase of the epidemic, and as we now think about what needs to be done moving forward, the time has now come for us to focus on the journey that we were on previously in making London one of the healthiest global cities. Prior to COVID, London partners had worked together to create the London Vision, which really articulated a shared vision across health, social care, local government, PHE and others about our ambitions for London and how we wanted to focus on key areas of health where there were either great inequalities or great impacts on the lives of Londoners, and we wanted to address them. And of course the mayor's health inequalities strategy really has shone a light on inequalities in London and had a framework for addressing inequalities in a very structured way, focusing on healthy places, healthy people, healthy communities, and looking at those wider determinants of health and how working together London could address these. So as we emerge from this first phase of COVID and we begin the process of restarting and recovering our city, it really is important that the gains that we've made in COVID, whether through more innovative ways of working, through digitalization of our programs, through better integration, better cross-working between organizations, that we hold on to those really positive Developments over the past six months. And then now we begin to apply them to our previous ambitions to see how do we get back on track, but getting back on track with a focus on addressing inequalities. And I'm so pleased that the London Health Board, chaired by the Mayor of London, has agreed to create London's first. Health Equity Board, which will report into the London Health Board. And this will bring senior leaders from across the city to have a resolute focus on both understanding the magnitude of inequalities in the city, but working across partners to ensure that London is going above and beyond to begin to address those inequalities. Now, this doesn't mean that work on inequalities isn't happening in local government, in many partners across the city, but we're having now a visible, senior commitment from leaders across the city that addressing health inequalities will be a top priority for health care and system leaders. And that's an exciting place to be. And it is a place that I think will we need to be held to account to ensure that at this phase, we're not only improving health and well-being, but we're truly addressing the inequalities as well.
0: And if you were to think about the health of Londoners over the next 10 years, say, what would be your greatest hopes and your biggest fears for what that might look like?
1: In the next 10 years, I think there are some trends that we need to be really careful about. So my vision and my hope is London will continue to be a global exemplar of openness, diversity, of health, of economic prosperity and of taking care of each other. In the short term, we need to get through the COVID pandemic. We need to prevent subsequent waves of the pandemic. And we need to ensure that those who are most vulnerable are protected and that our services are able to cope with the pandemic. Now, the pandemic itself is not the only priority because what we have learned from phase one is by only focusing on COVID, there is a risk that we do not focus on other major health challenges facing the community. And there's a real concern that non-COVID related mortality and morbidity will increase and may well have a disproportionate and greater impact on the health of Londoners than COVID. So in a sense, we need to do both things. We need to focus on COVID, manage that effectively, while continuing to manage the hypertension, diabetes, overweight, lack of physical activity of Londoners. I think there's a real opportunity for us in London to really articulate at a global city level what a resolute focus on addressing inequalities and focusing on the wider determinants of health can do to improve the lives of Londoners across their life course. So whether this is focusing on preparing and supporting young mothers, Whether it is ensuring that children have great educational outcomes, whether it is ensuring that Londoners are able to be paid a living wage and employment rates are low in the city, straight through to creating London as a place to grow old in and to have a long and productive life within our city with clean air access to green and blue spaces including parks and the river and ways in which we promote health and take care of each other as a city in ways that many other cities can't and don't and so as we think about the next 10 years my hope is this broader view on health which is includes providing high quality services, but also begins to get the range of partners which are involved in creating health, whether it's businesses, community sectors, faith sectors, our schools and universities, all engaged in this vision for creating one of the healthiest global cities. And that, I think, is what we should be working to in the next 10 years.
0: I do want to ask you now about your experiences as a leader. So I'm interested to know how you would describe your leadership style. And particularly, you talked right at the beginning about role models and the importance of role models for you. So as well as describing your leadership style, can you say a bit about what or who might have shaped it?
1: So one of the things I always say when I'm asked for leadership style is that I think I am old enough and hopefully, touch wood, wise enough to realise I don't have just one leadership style. In fact, uh, there are many leadership styles which create who I am and which I'm able to draw upon, given the circumstances and the context within which I'm working in. If I had to choose one, I'd say at my heart, I'm a values-based leader. And those values are important because they shape the decisions I make, the uh, work that I choose to be involved with. And they also give me the sense of authenticity as a leader to be able to speak from that place of values. But there are other leadership styles that I will work with on a day to day basis. You may speak to some of my colleagues and they'll say, Oh, he's an empowering leader. There are times when I might be a directive leader. If I'm in the middle of organizing a response to an outbreak, then there are times when I need to make decisions and I need to get things going. And that's just understood that that is a core skill set that we have to use. So I don't have one necessarily leadership style, but I do call upon a range of styles. And I think that agility is important because we're working in such a complex environment. And in fact, the styles that you may use with one partner may need to be adapted in working with other partners or in other situations. And it doesn't mean that you're a chameleon, but it means that you're comfortable and you're operating from that place, I think, of authenticity, knowing that you have a range of tools in your toolkit that you can draw upon in order to achieve the best outcome. Now, this journey on leadership didn't happen overnight. And the important thing, as I say to many of my mentees, is number one. A mentor doesn't have to last for life. You can have a mentor for a particular phase in your development. And then as you are moving to a new phase of your work and leadership to identify new mentors that can help you on that journey. And second, that a mentor doesn't need to have all of the things that you need In that one person, I have selected mentors because they're fantastic public speakers and I wanted to improve that aspect of my work. I've selected mentors because they're empathetic leaders and I wanted to understand how to use empathy and emotion in my leadership. And I've had mentors because they're fantastic technically. And learning from the best as an epidemiologist and a public health specialist has always been a key passion. So I'm sorry to those who are listening that I'm not calling out a specific name, but know that I am influenced daily and continuously by leaders and they don't have to be senior colleagues as well you know i see uh, especially in many of the young people who i'm working you know people who i'm working with now that same passion drive and energy that perhaps i had quite some time ago but that's refreshing and that's inspiring and that says actually the baton is not yet ready to be passed on but it does give you that energy for that final 100 meter sprint and that sort of mentoring and support and engagement is equally wonderful.
0: And looking back on your time as a leader and all the different roles you've had is there a sort of moment in time that you look back on and think I feel particularly proud of that?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's um I guess you don't get to where I got to without having some hard knocks <laughs> along the way. And well, there are many things I'm I'm really proud of, but the first is when I met President Obama, which was just before leaving the United States to return to the UK and I had been one of the organizers of the World International AIDS Conference in Washington D.C. in 2012, and there was a, a reception at the White House. And the president came by, and there were a group of us, and he shook my hand and said, you're Kevin Fenton, right? Yeah, I said, yes, I am, sir. And he said, I want to say thank you for everything that you've done for the American people. I've heard so much about your work. I'm so pleased that you were here. And is there anything that we can do to keep you here in the US? At which point I said, actually, no, I'm looking forward to going back to London. But do come and meet (laughs) me at some time, Uh, which gave him a chuckle. So that was a a high point. Another high point was uh, getting my PhD, which was really, I decided when I did public health that I, I wanted not just to be a great practitioner, but a great academic too. And I think the role of the PhD, the supervisors I worked with, and how that in turn has helped me to open doors in many ways has been a moment that I'm particularly pleased with. And then finally, you know, one of the things I do in public health, in part because part of it comes from a place of my own values, which I've spoken about, it's just doing the right thing and doing the right thing when it's sometimes tough. Uh, You know, I can look back on the COVID BME report, and for many people that was tough because of a number of reasons. But, you know, I was the first in the US to start having campaigns for HIV after nearly a decade of them being banned by federal government. I worked and led the team in the HIV when we changed the guidelines to remove the need for pre-test counselling at the time because we found that actually spending an hour telling people about an HIV test that they were going to take really wasn't effective and it didn't make any difference and we streamlined that. But that was Incredibly difficult, and there's a lot of pushback from colleagues. And then, of course, here in the UK, taking on tough projects such as uh, e cigarettes as a harm reduction tool or work on childhood obesity strategy, straight through to some of the more challenging things we're able to lift in PHE have been moments of difficulty, but moments where I can look back to see or practice. And our policies have fundamentally changed as a result of that pain.
0: That's an amazing list of things to be proud of. And I think true commitment to London that you turned down a personal request from Barack Obama. So if you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself just one bit of advice, what would you say to the 20-year-old Kevin Fenton?
1: (laughs) Um, uh, Be fearless and be kind.
0: That's great advice. And if you had just one message for health and care leaders who are listening to this podcast about what they could do to have a positive impact on reducing health inequalities, what would that message be?
1: I have seen throughout my career the importance of leadership. And leadership sets the tone, it sets the direction, it sets the expectation, it sets the accountability. And it sets the culture within which actions really do take place. So if I had to say one thing to anybody who's in this space and really wanting to make that difference is, first of all, do that homework on yourself and question your values, what you want to achieve and recognizing that as a leader, once you've made that decision, to make that difference, that you have the power and you have the responsibility and you have the privilege to be able to use that position to create good. And I've learned over the years that there are very few of us who have been given the privilege of taking on leadership. And therefore, I take it very seriously. So, as I give advice to other leaders, it is about recognizing the privilege and the gift that we have been given and to use it to make the best for others and using that position to create that culture, expectation, support and accountability that will make the difference in people's lives.
0: That's a really powerful message for us to end on. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure and a genuine privilege to speak to you today. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash kf podcast thank you to our podcast team for this episode our producers ian ford and sarah murphy and our researcher jonathan holmes and thank you of course to you for listening if you enjoyed this episode then please do subscribe rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts because it helps others to find us and it really helps us improve the show and of course we hope you can join us next time